All right, let's open up to Genesis chapter 17. I hope you're hungry. That's my warning shot right there. <laughs> I hope you're hungry. We have um, a little bit of ground to cover. We're not going to go all the way through the book of Genesis tonight. But uh, I do want to try and make it a good way into chapter 18. But I want to go back, starting off with chapter 17. I know we hit some high points on Sunday. I'd like to do the whole chapter and get some context and understanding for it. And Father, I do ask your blessing on the teaching of your word tonight, that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, that we would hear you, be in communion with you, Lord, and be encouraged and equipped and built up by the work that you do. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 17, verse 1, now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I remind you, it is El Shaddai whose presence makes perfect. That it's not that we have to walk before him and prove ourselves, but we walk before him and he makes us blameless. His presence is what perfects us. But what's interesting to me is at the beginning of chapter 17 here, we realize Abram had been walking before God for half a century. He'd been doing this, I mean, mostly, some ups and downs. We've, we've already seen a few of those. And yet God still appears to him and calls for him to be in his presence, calls for his perfecting work. He's 99 years old, and he's still growing in faith which brings a whole lot of comfort to me. Having just crossed into my 50s somewhat recently, <laughs> it's nice to know that there is no partiality with God, Romans chapter 2, verse 11. And what I mean by that is that young, old, amateur, mature, tenderfoot, time-worn, it doesn't really make any difference. If you are walking, living, and breathing on this planet, you are still being sanctified. My great peace in that is I haven't arrived yet. Praise the Lord. It's called growing in faith. And that's what Paul tells us. That's what Abram has been doing and will continue to do. He grows stronger in his faith. He's in the process of faith. And we are all in that place under construction by grace as we have faith in God. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or another way to say it is exercise. Exercise your faith. Give your faith reason to work. Put it on the treadmill, man. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here is 99-year-old Abram, and God is still saying, walk before me. Come on. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, verse two. And I will multiply you exceedingly. Well, Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham no longer exalted father, but father of a multitude. 
for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now I remind you what's going on here is this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant has already been cut. Chapter 15, verse 18, on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. If your Bible says made, that's another word for it, but the word is literally cut, you cut covenant. And that had already happened as, as God had Abram. Remember, he had him cut the animals in two and lay the halves on either side of each other, and God moved through the halves. God cut covenant with Abram. So it's already cut. Now he comes in, and as verse two tells us, I will establish my covenant. And the word establish is to deliver or transfer. In other words, he cut it back then, and now he's bringing it to bear. Now it's gonna have hands and feet, literally, little baby hands and feet belonging to Isaac. So he cut covenant, but now he's delivering covenant. And verse six going on says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, that is Canaan, what is Israel. I'm gonna give this to you, he promises, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. And it strikes me that God is taking no chances here. He is absolutely clear on what's going on. He's not leaving anything to chance, as in the past when he cut covenant with Abram and Abram and Sarai obviously assumed that Ishmael, their plan, was the way this was gonna get fulfilled. Now God comes back around and he is clarifying it exactly as is and understand as we read this that God's covenants are unlike any other covenants. Unlike any marriage covenant that you may have made in your life, un unlike any business agreement or transaction that takes place or any agreement between two people, God's covenants are completely different because when he cuts covenant, the outcome depends solely on him. Note in these verses, these opening verses, how many times he says, my covenant? Seven times in this chapter. Seven times he refers to it as my covenant. He doesn't say our covenant or your covenant. This is my covenant. Seven times just in the rollout, he says, I will. I will, I will, I will. In my chapter here, and you might wanna do something like this, either circle or highlight, but I highlighted every time God says my covenant, every time he says, I will, Seven times in the beginning, but 12 times total in the chapter, which I find interesting, 12, the number of the tribes of Israel, 12, the number of, of governance, the number of the apostles, 12 times, I will, I will, I will, seven times, my covenant, and four times, he underscores the length of that covenant, saying it is a berit olam, berit olam, which means covenant everlasting. Now, in the English, that sounds like, okay, it's the covenant forever. In the Hebrew, it's understood 
It's more literally a covenant to the end of the ages. The idea is this is a covenant that will exist all the way to the end of the ages so we could go all the way out to the end of the millennial kingdom. This covenant will run all the way. After that, it becomes irrelevant because at that point, all the people of God head on into eternity with the Lord. But it is a covenant that is not, has not ended, will not end until the very end of the ages and it's called the Barit Olam or what Jews today would call Brit Milah or Brit. If you know your Hebrew or a bris, that's circumcision. That is the word that is used for circumcision and there's an obvious reason for that. But this Brit Olam, this everlasting covenant includes a number of supernatural provisions. Okay, so this is my covenant, he says, and I will, I will, I will, I will do it. And it's a covenant everlasting. And in it, he, he says, I'm gonna make you, verse six, exceedingly fruitful. 99-year-old Abram, who is now Abraham. I'm gonna make you exceedingly fruitful. In other words, there's no fertility clinic needed here. He says, I will, in verse six, also make nations and kings from you. He says, I will be God to you and your descendants. And that's unique between God and this people, this lineage. He says in verse eight, I will give you and your descendants the land of your sojourn. And by the way, that's what we've called the land covenant. That's what God talked about in Genesis 15. But the land covenant technically is a subheading of the Abrahamic covenant. It's part of it. There are those who, who will term it as a unique or a standalone covenant, the land covenant, and then there's the Abrahamic covenant. But really, he here in chapter 17 draws the land covenant under the Abrahamic and says, this land will be yours. I'm gonna give this to you and your descendants. And note this, get this. There's a covenant coming, we'll get to an exodus, Lord willing, that is a covenant that we call the Mosaic covenant, and that is the one conditional covenant of God. If you do this, he says to the people of Israel, I will do this. And he says at that time, if you do this, you will live in the land. But if you fail at this, you'll be booted out of the land. Guess what? The land covenant he makes with Abraham is unconditional. This will belong to your people. This is an everlasting covenant. So though the Jewish people failed in the Mosaic covenant, did not keep the law and were expelled from the land in the diaspora, yet they have come back and filled the land. Why? Because God said, this will be yours to the very end of the ages. Though there be a season because they did not keep their part of the conditional covenant, the unconditional covenant of God is a promise to Abraham and his descendants that he is fulfilling before our very eyes today. We are watching this covenant unfold in Israel as the Jewish people late 19th century began flooding back into the land and the nation of Israel was born in a day and you've heard it all before, but it is a marvelous reality that we're watching prophecy fulfilled before our very eyes today. It's not just a 4,000 year old thing. This is immediate and contemporary. The land is yours, Abraham, and your descendants all the way to the end of the ages. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. But here, the people of Abraham and Sarah through Isaac, as God will clarify, uniquely receive the land 
of Israel. So if anyone wants to dispute whose land it is, whose it belongs to, talk to God because he established the promise. My covenant, again, over and over, my covenant, says El Shaddai. And all Abraham and those who trail after him have to do is, note this, keep it. That's all they have to do. You ever thought about what that means? When God says, I want you to keep my covenant. On the one hand, you might say, well, Lord, it's your covenant. Why do I have to keep it? (laughs) You said, I will, I will, I will, I will. Therefore, you're gonna do it. So what really is my part in it? Note this again in verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, I want you to keep it. Now understand this is expressed in two ways. The word keep there is shamar, and shamar means to observe, to preserve, and to safeguard. That's how you keep something. You don't add to it, you don't take away from it, you just keep an eye on it. You keep watch over it, you observe it. As Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Timothy, just retain the word. Keep it, guard it, teach it, preserve it. He says in 2 Timothy 1.14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. How does one guard the word of God? How do you keep the word of God? Do you have to do everything in it? You observe it, you preserve it. You safeguard it. You live by it. I I, I said this or something like it on Sunday, I'm pretty sure. Christian faith is not about proving our worth. It is about keeping faith in what God has already done. I'm not proving myself. I'm believing him for the sacrifice. I'm believing him for what he did on the cross. I'm believing that his blood is sufficient to cover and cleanse me of all my sin. My part is I, I keep that. I trust him. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed on through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. How do you hold a confession? You keep it, you restate it, you believe in it, and you trust him for it. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That means whether there's shootings going on in Seattle, whether there's chaos going on in Washington, D.C., whatever's happening in the world around us, even if our families are in turmoil, guess what? Our confidence is in Jesus. And we hold on to him. And we don't look at ourselves for our confidence. The more you look at yourself, the less confident you will be as a Christian. The more you look at Jesus, the more your confidence will grow. Which is again why he says, walk before me and be blameless, be in my presence. So what I'm saying here and what God is expressing is that he does it, my covenant, I will. He does it, I keep it. He performs it, I preserve it. He doesn't need me, but he loves me. I like that. He doesn't need me, but he loves me. He can do everything he's going to do without me, but he loves me. So he's involved me in it. 
As Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. So what are we supposed to do, Jesus? Rest in my work. You come to me and rest. I'll do the work. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. And now he adds a sign, a token. Here's the one thing I want you to do with this covenant. Here's how you can keep it, how you can keep it ever before you, how can you, you can constantly from generation to generation be aware of it. Do you remember there was a previous covenant that God gave a sign for? The Noahic covenant, what was the sign? The rainbow. So that now, even today, in 2020, every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded God will not flood the world again. He promised, that's his covenant. How do we keep it? We see the rainbow and go, I trust you. I believe you. Well, now with the Abrahamic covenant, he comes along and he gives a new sign, a token specific to this one, circumcision. Circumcision. Every male among you shall be circumcised. God gives Abraham something that now he can do to confirm faith in this covenant, to keep this covenant. You and every male, I want you to do this. All the men, all among you shall be circumcised. He says in verse 11, and you shall be circumcised, 99-year-old Abraham, which is, I believe, where the word oi came from. <laughs> you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. God is not leaving anything to chance. He's not going to let Abraham go, oh, circumcision, let's uh, just cut off maybe the tip of my pinky. That'll be good. No, no. No, no. I'm going to be clear, Abraham, because clearly I wasn't clear enough with you the last time. Ishmael's the proof of that. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is, note this, eight days old, shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, that is, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And then he says, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be <laughs> cut off, no pun intended, from his people. He has broken my covenant. How do you do a teaching when the entire chapter is about circumcision? Well, here we go. And it's funny because it, it makes people a bit uncomfortable because we all know what we're talking about and God even had to spell it out. But we'd really rather move on to something else. Please stay with this for a moment because this is incredibly significant. God says, Abraham, every male in your household, that means Jew or Gentile. What do you mean? If a Jewish person if a person in the line of Abraham had a, a servant from the nations working in the house, that servant was to be circumcised. Everybody connected to the household of Abraham had to be circumcised to signify 
one who is connected to the covenant, one who's keeping the covenant. It's it's a simple thing, but it is the proof that a Jewish man and his family and his household is keeping the covenant that God made with Abraham 4,000 years ago, circumcision. Why circumcision? Because it's the perfect sign. It is the perfect sign. God is amazing in choosing this and in giving this to Abraham. And as much as we may, you know, laugh a little bit and be a little squeamish in talking about it, this, this is perfect because the covenant promise is to Abraham and his seed. You can't get a whole lot closer than that. Circumcise the flesh of the foreskin. That is the location that the seed is going to come from, that is the, it, a constant reminder. A reminder to the husband as well as to the wife that this covenant is being kept, is being observed. And so I believe this mark is ideally placed, again, for the husband and for his wife who intimately shares with him, so therefore would be aware, as he is aware, of the covenant sign of circumcision. And God says, now I want you to do this when the child, when the male child, not the female child, and I actually will address that in just a second because we can't get squeamish enough tonight. The male child was to be circumcised at eight days. Why at eight days? It's remarkable what God knows that we didn't know for a long, long time. At eight days, the blood begins to, or has come to the point of coagulation. Prior to eight days, the blood does not coagulate. The baby would bleed to death. But at eight days, the blood coagulates. At eight days, the baby is the most, in, in that area, is the, it's the least painful. At, at the, you, you wait a whole lot longer than that, say, oh, I don't know, 99 years, and ah! And yes, it does cause a baby to cry, but it doesn't do permanent damage. It's not, it, it, it's not even something obviously remembered. It's minimal, the pain is minimal on the eighth day. You know what's interesting to me? Here we are in these last days, and there is an increasing resistance to, if not antagonism toward the practice of circumcision. Now, I don't know you, if you've heard about this or run across it, but, you know, medical journals coming out and people trying to say, ah, it's a bad idea. We don't need to do that. Let's move away from that. And there are those who decry circumcision as medically unnecessary. So we're actually seeing, there was a long time, even in our country's history, where circumcision was pretty common among males. And it's not so common anymore. A lot of doctors saying, nah, you don't need to do it. It's unnecessary. There are others who are saying it's a form of infant mutilation. Still others saying it inflicts unnecessary pain, and there are those who say, and it diminishes future sexual pleasure, so it's just, just don't do it. Isn't it remarkable how often our world comes up with reasons not to do things that God says are a good idea? Now, I'm not trying to make the case for circumcision, that is, and if you're a parent and you know, you're gonna have children or you, you, you are about to have a child or whatever, you know, I'm, not, I'm not gonna have that conversation, we can on the side, about you know, what does Pastor Rick think? I don't know why you'd care, but, 
What about this issue of, of circumcision? Listen, all of the objections to circumcision have been categorically proven false. All of them. And in fact, it's just the opposite that's true. Pediatric scholars and researchers, Dr. Jonathan Merman of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said in 2014, the scientific evidence is clear that the benefits of male circumcision far outweigh the risks. Dr. Aaron Tobian from Johns Hopkins Research said the benefits of male circumcision have become more and more clear over the last decade. So the most recent research says this is a good thing. Guess what? God knows what he's doing. The Lord knows what he's doing. People love to question God. You know, question, how could he say, oh, that's, that's archaic, it's barbaric. And yet the more we really honestly look at what God says, the more we see this is a good thing. And by the way, God never, ever in Scripture calls for female circumcision. What is also referred to as genital mutilation, and it is practiced in many Islamic countries, and perhaps you've heard about this, it does cause excruciating pain that is lasting, can be lifelong pain. It denies sexual pleasure. By the way, that's the reason they do it. The Islamic practice of female circumcision is to make it unpleasurable, painful, difficult for the woman. That's the point. And it causes lifelong problems, including disease. It goes on and on. And that has been shown to be true. And God doesn't say anything about that. The covenant sign is male circumcision, which is involving the female, again, because you have the husband-wife relationship, which is intimate. It is something that ends up shared between husband and wife, the circumcision of the male. It's completely different, and it is prescribed here by God for his people. And don't forget that God is the creator of the human body, so he kind of knows what he's doing. He knows why he says what he says. And he offers it to Abraham as an irrevocable sign. See, that's another thing about circumcision that is so amazing is that this is not something you reverse. <laughs> Once it's done, it's done. And God offers that to Abraham as if to say, as this sign is irreversible, so my covenant is irrevocable. Once it's done, it's done. Romans eleven twenty nine 29, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. When God makes a promise, he does not back out of it. We've said many times here before that if God is not faithful to the Jew, why do you think he'd be faithful to you? But here's the good news. He is faithful. He makes a promise. He keeps it. Guaranteed, he never goes back on it. And God is serious about this covenant of circumcision. Note again, verse 14, an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is absolutely serious with God. Note that the punishment for not obeying God in this is, in essence, disfellowship to be cut off from the people. What does that tell you about God's view of relationship? Highly valued, highly valued, the most important thing to God. 
loving one another, being in relationship together, being family together, living life together, being his family. But if you disobey him, if you go head to head with him, you will be cut off from him and the entire family. He's so serious about this, he even makes this statement in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 23, verse one. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, I'm not sharing that just to be gross. The reality is this is so important. It is so serious. And for God to say in verse 14 that you will be cut off, that is a physically graphic depiction of a far more serious spiritual punishment. It's as serious as as God gets with Israel regarding the covenant. Why? Because the value is in the covenant itself. There is immense value here in what the covenant represents. And here's where we get off. So, So listen closely to me on this. Where we get off, where we become legalistic, where we become religious is when we focus on the token rather than what it means. The token is circumcision. God prescribes it, it needs to be done. Its value is huge. But it's not just valuable in terms of the physical benefits, and there are physical benefits for it. There, is, there are health benefits for circumcision. God knew that. But that's not why he prescribed it. He prescribed it because this would be something that would be so special. Is anyone, no one in here is Jewish, are you? Or has a Jewish background? Okay, Daniel, you do. Okay, so one. Let me read to you from the perspective of a Jew what circumcision really means. Dennis Prager, in his Genesis commentary, had this to say. I found the circumcisions of my two sons and two grandsons more emotionally and spiritually moving than any other religious ritual in my life. I cried at the Brit of both my sons. Here I was, in as dramatic a way as one could imagine, bringing my sons and my grandsons into the Jewish people and into the Jewish covenant with God. See, as a Jew, Prager gets it. That's the point, is it is a coming into covenant relationship from the earliest point. My sons, my grandsons, my great-grandsons coming into covenant. I'll tell you what, I look forward to the day when my grandsons, Silas and Ethan, go into the waters of baptism. I want it to be a day of their choosing. I want, to be it, I want it to be baptism based on belief because that's what the Bible teaches. I want them to, to know what they're doing and have faith in God when they go into the water, but I can't wait to share that with them. And that is something of what a Jewish father, even a Jewish mother, thinks and feels when the child is taken to the moil and is circumcised in the covenant ceremony. It talks of, it speaks of coming into covenant with God, and it speaks of the relationship among the people of God. It is unique to the people of God, and a constant reminder that the seed of Abraham has an everlasting promise that God has given. Should Christians circumcise? It's a good question. The uh, Judaizers certainly felt they should. You remember the Judaizers? Those are those people who came along in the first century, tried to infiltrate the church and tell Christians, new believers who were fresh in their faith and coming into grace for the first time, that you need to go back and keep the law. Uh, You can believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you gotta believe in Jesus 
and keep Torah. If you're Jewish, you got to be Jewish through and through. And this grace thing, that's all fine. But you got to keep the law or you're not saved. Along come these Judaizers. And they taught this legalistic return to Judaism. Listen to Paul's response. This is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. If you have your Bible and you're a quick turn, you can go over to Galatians chapter 5, 11, where Paul gets equally serious about this whole issue of circumcision. Check this out. Galatians 5.11. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? What's Paul saying? He teaches circumcision. Paul still, as a Christian, felt it was a good thing, taught it, you know, especially if you're a Jewish person, hey, keep that covenant. No problem. Not, not to save yourself, but I, I, I don't have a problem with circumcision, he's saying. I, I don't have a problem preaching that, but I'm still being persecuted. Why? He says, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. What are you saying, Paul? Well, we have a nice word there, mutilate. If you were reading this in the Greek, what you would read is, I wish those who are troubling you would cut themselves off. Literally. Those who are saying, you must be circumcised to be saved. Paul's not saying that. Paul's not opposed to circumcision. But he's, he's saying that doesn't save you. That doesn't connect you to the new covenant. And I wish those who are telling you, you got to do this to be saved, would just cut themselves. Just go all the way. Just cut it off. That's what he's saying. For you were called, verse 13, to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Back to the covenant of circumcision. This is not just a flesh covenant. This was always more to God. In fact, the Abrahamic covenant was always bigger to God than simply a flesh issue. It's a spiritual issue. God uses the flesh to portray something far greater. And by the way, in Torah law, there were two commands that would result in being cut off from the people of God, just two. There are a lot of commands, 613 in Torah, and many more if you're gonna try and follow the rabbis. But only two that resulted in that the punishment was being cut off from the people if they were not kept. You know what those two are? Circumcision and Passover, which I find fascinating. Why is that? Circumcision and Passover. Numbers 9, 13, the man who is clean and is not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from his people. For he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time, that man will bear his sin. The issue is not just the act of circumcision or the act of keeping Passover, it's community. It represents something far greater. And God says, you will keep Passover. You will keep circumcision. Why is that so significant? Because Jesus took these two things, circumcision and Passover, and he transferred them he delivered them, if you will. He reestablished them into what we now have as baptism and communion. Baptism is the Christian parallel to circumcision. Circumcision, depicting a, a child 
coming anew into the family of Israel in the same way that baptism is the picture of one dying to self and being raised like a child in new birth into the family of God. And of course, communion being the, the heir, I guess you could say, the heir to Passover. As Jesus at that last Passover established communion. Take, eat this, it's my body. Drink from this, all of you, as often as you do so. This is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you do so, you do it in remembrance of me. Jesus transfers it over. Baptism, the new birth. The communion, the sign of the new covenant. But listen, and this is why I point this out. Even with these, the value is not in the water or the bread or the juice. The value is in what they signify. It's in what they indicate, what they really mean. First Peter chapter three, verse 20. You recall this, Peter said, in the days of Noah, eight persons were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, oh, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual thing. Baptism is the outward representation of the inward miracle that God performs of the receiving and the acceptance of his grace, of coming out of the death of the old body into the born again new life. It's a picture of that. It signifies that in the same way that baptism is a token of, of our salvation, a, a symbol or a signification of it. That's what circumcision was to the Jewish people. Baptism is not about clean skin or circumcised foreskin. It's about the heart. And so was circumcision. And this is the thing, the thing to get about circumcision. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse six, the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So early on, circumcision was explained that it's not just about the keeping of, you know, this legalistic ritual. It's about the heart. It's an outward representation of the inward heart action of God. Jeremiah chapter four, verse four. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Paul picks up on this, Romans 2, 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And interesting, Jesus was both circumcised and baptized. Bible tells us, Luke 2.21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So on the eighth day, Jesus was circumcised, a good Jewish boy. In Matthew 3.13, Jesus arrived from the Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized? I understand why he was circumcised. He was born a Jew, and he kept the law perfectly, fulfilled the law in and of himself. But why was Jesus baptized? He said, to fulfill all righteousness righteousness, meaning what? Meaning to do what's right in its most simple form. 
How was Jesus getting baptized, doing what was right? Listen, when the high priest took office, he was fully immersed in the mikvah bath, where we get baptism. The, the Jewish practice, practice of the mikvah became baptism. And the high priest would go into the mikvah. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness that he might step into the role of the great high priest. Circumcised as a Jew fulfilling the law, baptized to fulfill righteousness because righteousness is the issue. Doing things God's way, an eternal spiritual issue. So he was circumcised and baptized. And by the way, Jesus not only kept Passover, but becoming the high priest and the sacrificial offering, he took Passover and inaugurated the Lord's Supper right out of Passover. Christ, our Passover, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Understand the significance of circumcision. I guess we could say it's twofold. Number one, it portrays a deeper spiritual reality, the circumcision of the heart, a giving of oneself to God. But it was also about community and coming into the community of faith. Same thing with baptism. That's why baptism is a public thing. Because we do this and we come into the community of faith. We share in this new life together. Well, let's continue on. Verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Remember, she goes from a princess or my princess to the princess. And I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her. And she will be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And this is the clarification that God didn't make before. I don't think he had to. But this is why 13 years later, after Ishmael is now a 13-year-old boy and they've messed it all up, God comes back and clarifies, Abraham, what I told you before was that you were going to have a son. You were married. The obvious implication was you and Sarah. But Abraham and Sarah did what people do. They spiritualized the word of God. You know what I mean by that? Let me give you an example. Back around the mid-fourth century, the church began to spiritualize the second coming of Jesus to spiritualize the book of Revelation. You see, for the first 283 years of the church's existence, it was turmoil. It was persecution. It was bloody. It was difficult. It was hard fought. But all of a sudden, Constantine comes along. You all know the story, many of you. Constantine comes along and makes a pact with Christians and ceases all of the persecution. And then the next thing we know, the church and Rome get in bed together. And suddenly the persecution stops and theologians, they start to look at God's word and go, well, huh, things are pretty good. Tribulation seems to be behind us. Maybe we're in the kingdom right now. And they spiritualize the whole thing, taking away the concept of an ultimate millennial kingdom that the Bible teaches and saying, oh no, that's, that's today because hey, look at what's happening. And it's allowing culture to define truth rather than letting the truth change culture. So that's a picture of spiritualizing. Well, that's, that's, what, that's what Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah had done. Gave birth to Ishmael, 
Well, okay, this is a little weird, it's a little strange, but maybe this is what God meant. I mean, obviously, because Sarah never got pregnant, so this must be the thing, so we'll go this way. Rather than paying closer attention to God, so he comes back now 13 years later and he makes it clear. It is through Sarah. Sarah's part of the deal. It's not just you, Abraham, it's your wife. I'm gonna bless her. Nations, kings will come from her, verse 17. And then, of course, you know the story. Abraham, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. We talked about this on Sunday. But God said, nevertheless, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, laughter. And I will establish my covenant, there it is again, my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as we trace this through in Genesis, Isaac will have that covenant reestablished by God personally. Jacob will have that same covenant reestablished by God personally. My covenant, he's gonna come back and tell each one again and again. I'm gonna establish it with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season, next year, verse 21, verse 22. Did I skip something there? I think I did, but we read it Sunday. Yeah, chapter, uh, verse 20, I'm gonna, as for Ishmael, I've heard you, I'll bless him, I'll make him fruitful, I'll multiply him exceedingly, he shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation, and we've seen how that's all turned out. But then continuing on, verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham, and the Abrahamic covenant was crystal clear. Unquestionable, the seed of Abraham, reminded by the token of circumcision, through Sarah, his wife, would produce Isaac for an everlasting covenant. That's the deal. So what do you do when you're 99 years old and you learn that circumcision is now part of the deal? I would be real tempted to say, <laughs> I'm out, I'm done. Maybe you need to find someone a little younger for that. Like, Lord, maybe someone eight days old. But, you know, are you serious? Me? Look at what Abraham does, verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, 13 years old. Oy vey. See, I think Abraham's reaction to circumcision was oy, and Ishmael's was oy vey. Are you with me here at all? Just, I'm just imagining a 99-year-old man and his 13-year-old son having to get circumcised. Come on. This is unbelievable here, but he does it. And all the servants who were born in his house, oy vey, ay, and all who were bought with his money, are you kidding me? And every male among the men of Abraham's household and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin, note this, in the very same day as God had said to him. All right, guys, line up. You know what this means? This is a, a, an incredible act of faith. For one thing that he's gonna ask all the guys to do this. I mean, he had to really believe God was the one who told him. But this means Abraham's entire militia, his fighting men, all on the same day. This means any man who could be any sense of protecting Abram and his flocks and herds and family, 
They're down for the count. They are rendered weak and useless until the healing was, take, was done. Every single man in the Abrahamic household, and we're told that Abraham had, we think, upwards of 1,000 servants, all circumcised. That day, that very same day, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And again, I say, <laughs> that's faith. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, the Bible repeats, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son, all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Clearly, circumcision for Abraham was far more than a right. He did it because it was right because he believed God for it. How do you know? How do we know it was faith that led Abraham to this action? Bottom line, because when you accept the commandments of God, when you believe God, you start acting on it immediately. See, faith is not faith, James tells us, without works. There's, there's something that happens. There's something we do. There's always a response. That's faith. You can say you believe all you want, but if it changes nothing, you really don't believe. I can say I have faith in God, but if that faith doesn't affect behavior, then do I really have faith? In the same day, faith is not the result of a six-month study. Let's ponder this. Make it, let's analyze it intellectually and think it through and let's get all the facts in order and out on the table. That's not faith. That's study. Faith is exercised in the very same day. I mean, man, when you know it's the Lord that's spoken, you act. If you don't know, you waffle. If you don't believe at all, you do nothing. Now, let me put it to you this way, because we've talked about waiting on the Lord an awful lot. If you are unsure of the will of God, wait. If you're not sure that God has told you to do anything, don't, don't do it. If you have a big decision and you're praying about it and you're not sensing a direction, hold on, give God time, then you wait on the Lord. But when you know that it is the will of God, when faith comes into your heart, run. Don't wait. You act immediately. Psalm 119.60, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. When I know the commandment of the Lord, when faith comes into my heart, man, I want to move. I want to go. I want it to happen now. I don't want to waste time. I've told you all by, by example 16 years ago that from the moment we heard the Lord say, I want you to plant a church here, to the first Bible study, one month. One month, and it was too long. Russ, that was a long month. It felt that way to me. We couldn't get started fast enough once we knew this was the Lord. Gotta go. Now, there are other times where we wait on the Lord and he renews our strength, right? I wait on the Lord when I'm not certain of what he's called me to do. But when I know, put on your tennis shoes and get on the track. Run, go to it, do not wait. He says, I hastened and did not delay. That word hasten, it's a great word in the Hebrew, it's hasti, very close to hasten. And what it means when the psalmist says, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments, 
To hosty is to hurry with joyful excitement. Dad's calling. Dad says go. Dad's got a plan. Man, move out, obey, as Abraham did in the very same day. Chapter 18. Now, timing note, real quickly, before we go into the next chapter, if you look back at verse 21, God says, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And I want you to be clear on what the word season is there. It's moed. Moed, the, the plural form is moedim, which literally translated means appointed times. Moed, appointed time. This is not a season. This is not generic. It's not God saying, uh, Sarah's going to have Isaac in the fall, or Sarah's going to have Isaac in the springtime. It is, Sarah's going to have Isaac at this appointed time next year. So I take that to mean, if you're just reading it literally, one year from the day. It will be one year from today that Sarah is going to give birth to Isaac, okay? Keep that in mind. What that means is that Sarah is going to have to get pregnant in three months, which is good because Abraham was just circumcised. Are you with me? <laughs> Gives Abraham time to be healed up, but, but something more important here. Listen, what this means is that the covenant child will be conceived after obedience takes place. The mark of circumcision first. Then Sarah is going to get pregnant, and then Isaac will come. Obedience first. Obey what he's asked, and then the covenant will be underway. Trust, obey, bear fruit. That's how it works with God. Trust him first. As trust and faith come, then you act on that trust and faith, and the fruit will come. You don't get the fruit first. You don't have the child born before the conception, before the circumcision. No, circumcision, obedience, and then conception, and then fruit. Well, it, it would be one year to the day, and... Chapter 18 picks up, and I think we can make a good case that three months have gone by. So now it's three months later, chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, or the terebinths of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes, that is Abraham, and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him, and when he saw, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Verse 1 literally says, where it says the Lord in your scriptures, it's Yahweh. So remember, Moses is writing. Moses says, Yahweh appeared. Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Yahweh appeared. So it makes it absolutely clear. There's no question as to who leads this traveling party of three. One of them is Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen, 
To him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. But if no man can see him, then as we've already talked about, this must be the next pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus because this is the Lord. Three men standing there and one is the Lord. And we'll see from chapter 19 that two are angels because they're gonna head on down to a little town called Sodom. That's for another study. One is the Lord. Yahweh appears to Abraham and for Yahweh to appear, this has to be in the person of Jesus Christ who, by the way, later on will have the the title of King of Kings, Lord of Lords, right? Revelation 17, 14 and 19, 16. Jesus, who said in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And people want to know, well, which, which one of the revelations is Jesus talking about? I'd say all of them. Abraham saw me. That's the point. Jesus says, I interacted with Abraham. But watch this. Now, Now, the Lord waited from the birth of Ishmael to the reestablishment of the covenant with circumcision. He waited 13 years, and now it's been three months. Wow. What's the difference? Why all of a sudden three months? And there are a few reasons that I think are significant. Number one, because God's timing is God's timing. Because he's going to come when he needs to. He will show up when it's appropriate. And sometimes... That's going to be years. And sometimes after it's been years and he's shown up, he'll show up the next day. Why? I don't know. It's his timing. His ways are not my ways. And my thoughts are not his thoughts. But note this. Why does he come back three months later? Because while Abraham heard of the restatement of the covenant and heard about circumcision and heard this was going to go through Sarah, guess what? Sarah hadn't heard. Sarah is not even present in chapter 17. Now, I'm sure Abraham told Sarah he would have to that very same day, going to be out in the field with the boys. Don't ask. But he had to tell her, so obviously she would have been aware that this had happened, but she's not present. God comes back three months later. Why? For Sarah's sake, which I think is really, really sweet. I think it's amazing. He comes back because he knows that Sarah's gonna need to hear as well. Why is Sarah gonna need to hear? Why can't she just hear from Abraham? Well, because there's something that she's gonna need to do to be obedient to the promise that she's gonna bear a child. There's something Sarah's gonna have to do. You understand? To be obedient to God's promise All right, hold that thought. There's one more reason that I believe God returns. And it's a more spiritual reason, and that is because faith and obedience invite presence. Abraham responds. He does exactly what God asks, though it seems outlandish, this whole act of circumcision. He acts on it that day. He believes God for the covenant promise. He accepts it as truth. He is now walking with the Lord. He's living with him, which is why I believe Abram says in verse three, if now I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, my Adonai, please do not pass your servant by. Are we good? Have I not shown that I believe you and that I trust in you? Remember what God said back in the beginning of chapter 17? 
I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Abraham was. This, is, this year, year 100 for Abraham is, is the high watermark of Abraham's faith life. He is, he's working on all cylinders. He is following the Lord. He's trusting the Lord. He's believing the Lord. He is walking before the Lord. God's making him blameless. And I also can make a case for Abraham sitting in the tent door expectantly. So not only is he obedient, but he's expecting something to happen. He's looking forward to something happening. Man, that's important in our lives. Isn't that important? Listen, I'm to a point in my life, I've seen most of the major things that I've wanted to see. I've done most of the major things that I've wanted to do. And I went to college and I got married and, and I had children. I raised children. I'm still raising children. So that's kind of still in, in flux there. But I have grandkids. You know, and, and the thought has come to me recently. You know, if God came today, good. I'm, I mean, I'm good. I'm good to go. What am I looking forward to? And that's not to be depressing or anything. But seriously, what do I have to look forward to? You know what we have to look forward to? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. So I love his appearing, longing for it. I can't wait for him to come. And no matter where we are in our lives, from young to old, we can, we can long for his love, his appearing. We have that to look forward to. Well, look at Abraham. He's 99 years old, three months into this, this hundredth year, perhaps, and he lifts up his eyes, and when he sees this one who I believe he recognized that this is the Lord. I don't know if he looked exactly the same as he had three months earlier, but he looks up, and what does this old man do in the heat of the day? He runs. He gets up, and he runs over to them. This is more than Middle East hospitality. If now I have found favor in your sight, oh, come, come to my tent if now I have found favor in your sight as he runs to them and bows to the earth in obeisance and worship to them, if now I've found favor, this, this is not a customary phrase. Abraham has been waiting and watching for the Lord because that's what obedience does. That's what faith does. The more I trust the Lord, the more expectant I am of what he's going to do next. The more obedient I am to the Father, the more aware I, have, I am when he's doing things in the world around me or in my life. I'm expecting him to move. I'm expecting him to work. And, and Abraham doesn't call him Yahweh here. He says, my Lord, my Adonai. Why does he say Adonai instead of Yahweh? Let me just remind you of the verse we read on Sunday. Exodus chapter 6, verse 23. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Abraham didn't know the name Yahweh. He knew El Shaddai, El Elyon. He knew El for, for God. He knew probably at this point El Roy. But he didn't know the name Yahweh. So he says, my Adonai, my Lord, which is what you would expect him to say. And he invites in because, again, faith and obedience invite the presence of the Lord. Verse 4. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your 
servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. See, this is not, you don't grab the Wonder Bread off the shelf in those days. They got to make bread. You guys just chill for a minute. And off he goes, and they're in there baking bread. And if that weren't enough, Abraham also ran to the herd. He's running 99 years old plus in the heat of the day, and he's running all over the place. And he took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. What a beautiful picture. Listen, when, when you are walking in faith and obedience, you are automatically going to be hospitable to the presence of the Lord. Automatically, you're going to desire. Here's a sure measure of your faith. If you are welcoming and hospitable to Jesus, if you're inviting Jesus to be with you where you are, and if you want him to be comfortable in your presence, you're walking by faith. Question for you tonight. Is Jesus comfortable in your presence? Are you hospitable? Is your environment hospitable for him, would he enjoy doing what you do? Would he join in with your daily activities? Would he enjoy what you do in your leisure time? See, if you can answer yes to that, you're walking by faith. If you're like, eh, I'm not so sure, then the question is, are we really making an hospitable environment for Jesus? See, Abraham immediately, it's the Lord. Man, we've got to make him as comfortable as possible. Wash your feet under the tree. We're making you a meal. We're bringing it to you. You relax. I want you to feel at home in my tent. Is Jesus at home in your home, in your environment? And furthermore, if you are welcoming and if you are hospitable to Jesus, guess what you are not? You are not legalistic. You can't be legalistic and be faithful at the same time. Did you notice what Abraham did here? He violated kosher law, big time. Look at verse eight. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. No observant Jew would serve meat and dairy together at the same meal. Haven't I told you before, Cheryl and I got busted for that in Jerusalem? I have my meat shawarma, which are really good there. And she had her bagel and cream cheese. And we sat down at the same table. And the owner of both establishments, the two guys came running out, shouting at us in Hebrew. We're like, what, what, what? <laughs> and they're pointing at the food. You've got a shawarma and you have a bagel and cream cheese at the same table. <laughs> I'm like, dude, this is not like circumcision. Relax. They're all freaked out. You cannot put the, the meat and the cheese, the meat and the dairy, you cannot put them together. You know what's worse? Not only did Abraham violate kosher law, God did. He ate it. The Lord's violating law. What? He's not a vegan. Hey, good point. I got to tell Paul Schultz. Hey, Paul, God's not a vegan. He's chowing on calf. 
Here's the point. They're eating the meat and the cheese, and, and, and you might say, okay, wait a minute, but, but the law of Moses wasn't given yet. Okay, so God's inconsistent? So he's going to say something later that he won't follow himself prior to? That, you, you can't use that one. God is completely consistent. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 138, verse 2, you have magnified your word according to all your name. His word and his name are of equal value, which means if he doesn't keep his word, his name is worthless. So what's the deal? Well, the real question is, does kosher law, or why does kosher law forbid this? Why can't you have meat and milk in the same meal? And it comes down to one verse. You Bible students know this. If you haven't heard this, you need to make note of this. Exodus 23, 19 tells us, and it's repeated three times in Torah law, you are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. That's it. And legalism is taking that verse and turning it into you may never have dairy and meat in the same meal. The boiling the young goat in a mother's milk was a pagan practice. It was a pagan sacrifice. And so God said, don't do that. Don't do what the pagans do. And he lists several things that the pagans practiced in Canaan's land that he did not want his people to practice. And this was one of them. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. But this says nothing of dairy and meat at the same time, but the rabbis came along. 613 laws need a little help. We need to codify it. We need to expand it. We need to, you know, go larger here. I mean, go big or go home. And so they take laws like this and they go, well, you know what? If you eat meat and drink milk, if you have milk and a lamb burger at the same time, it could, well, it could really get your goat. You can get in your stomach, you got the meat there, you got the milk there, and it begins to boil and seethe in your digestive tract, and you are boiling meat with the milk, and you're violating the law. That's exactly what they taught. It's ridiculous. It's legalism. It's being afraid that if we step even an iota outside of the law, we're lost, and the reality is that's true. We can't keep the law. We will step outside the law. That's why we need grace. And if you are hospitable to Jesus and if you're welcoming to Jesus, you're not going to be legalistic. You're going to go for the calf and the milk and serve it up. Are you, are you with me in this? The, the milk in your stomach, if it, if it boils the meat, man, anytime we beef up the commandments or try to milk them for all they're worth, it's legalism. And it's just not a problem here. God is not violating any law because this is not even law. And John says in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not hard. They're really not difficult. Jesus says, you know what? Here's a key. If you wanna keep all the commandments of the law and the prophets, here it is. Love God and love each other. Everything else hangs on that. If you do that, you don't have to worry about any of the rest because you will keep his law. You will be hospitable to the presence of the Lord. You will enjoy the Lord together as we see Abraham and these three men, that is Yahweh and a couple of angels. Well, verse nine, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, they're in the tent. This is important. Why is he asking where Sarah? He didn't ask that in chapter 17. Hey, where's Sarah? She's in the tent. 
I told Les today, I can imagine at this point that Yahweh, that Jesus, that the Lord raises his voice a little bit to make sure she can hear from the tent. Why? Because this is for her. Chapter 18 is for Sarah. This is so she can hear. Abraham heard in chapter 17, obeyed, trusts, believes. He's waiting for the miracle child. Sarah needs to hear it. And so the Lord speaks. Where is Sarah, your wife? She's there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Well, God knew that. See, Jesus always knows when we're listening and when we're not. He always knows what's going on, what we're thinking. He knows what's happening with Sarah just there in the other room. He knew she was right behind him. He knew she was listening in. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Let me be literal for you. The Bible says there she was past the manner of women, which is to say she's postmenopausal. She's not even in a place where even if she wanted to have a child, she's beyond that. Childbearing is over if she, if she hadn't been barren before, and she was her whole life, but then having gone through menopause, she's now at the place, there's no having a child. She's gone through the change. You could say there was no womb for them at the end. <laughs> Verse 12, and Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also and the pleasure she's referring to is not the pleasure of having a child. Let me just be blunt. The pleasure she's referring to is sexual. Are you kidding me? Says 90-year-old Sarah. Are you telling me right now? That you, that, what? It's more likely that she and Abram have not enjoyed this particular pleasure for quite a while. And she hears this, and the first thing she thinks is, wait, I'm going to have a baby. You want me with him? And Come on. Look at him. <laughs> now, by the way, let me tell you something about Sarah. You'll see again in a, an upcoming chapter. She's still gorgeous. This woman was stunning. According to the Bible, even at the age of 90, Sarah was absolutely beautiful. But I'm thinking, and I think it's implicit in the text, and, and Sarah is not being delicate here. She really, if we're reading this in Hebrew, we would say, whoa, look at what she said. You know, shall I have the pleasure? My Lord being old also? Sarah, at this point, is gonna need to get pregnant the old-fashioned way. This will not be a miraculous birth, except that God will open her womb, except that God will make Abram's seed functional, that God will, he will be involved. There is supernatural touch that's gonna happen here, but it's gonna be Abraham and Sarah come together as husband and wife, and they have a child. She's going to get naturally pregnant, and Sarah finds the whole thing laughable. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear when I am old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at the Moed. At that date, it's on the calendar. Check the iPhone, Abraham, it's there. I will return to you 
And then he says, at this time next year, and that phrase is seasonal, at this season next year, and Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he, the Lord, said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) I love the story. And I love the fact that God is just so authentic with Sarah here. I heard you laugh, but I didn't laugh out loud. Doesn't matter. I heard you laugh. Hey, this was going to be a birth by natural process with supernatural intervention. And if you look at chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So he is going to work miraculously in her, but the seed is going to be Abram's, the egg is going to be Sarah's, the womb is Sarah's, and the child will be born in the natural way. Why? Because it had to be by faith. It took faith for Sarah and Abraham at that advanced age to come back together because God said, this is the way I want it to be. Isaac's going to be born. He will literally be a godsend as the Lord will now quicken both Abe and Sarah to parental fruitfulness. And again, Sarah laughs. God calls her on it. But the good news is she's going to do her part. She will play the role, and he will be faithful just as he promised to be. Now, I want to stop there tonight. We'll we'll go on the rest of it on Sunday. But I want to ask one last question, and we'll end on this. Is anything too difficult for you tonight? Is anything too difficult for you? See, verse 14, the Lord says, is anything too difficult for Yahweh of himself? I ask, is there anything too difficult for you? This is the first time of a number of times that we hear this phrase uttered, this exact phrase. Is anything too difficult for you. Three more times in the Older Testament, we're going to hear it. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Jeremiah, the prophet says, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Same word, same phrase. And down in verse 27 of Jeremiah 32, God responds. He says, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Same phrase. Zechariah the prophet, chapter 8, verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Note this in your Bibles, verse 14. The first time God says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? The word difficult may be translated in some of your Bibles as anything too hard. If you look in your Bible margin, some of your Bibles will translate this for you. The word is yip pala, yip pala, which means wonderful, wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now, what's wonderful about this word is it goes both ways, both positive and negative. On the negative way, is there anything too hard, anything overwhelming, anything you just, you can't do it? Is there anything God can't do? Anything too hard, too tough, too overwhelming for the Lord? But on the positive side, is there anything too wonderful, too amazing, 
too awesome? You know, we talk about the rapture of the church, Christians the world over being caught up to meet him in the clouds and so we shall always be with the Lord and that's pretty awesome, pretty amazing. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? He can do whatever he wants. I love the phrase and the realization that this is the verb form, difficult, the verb form, wonderful. Yip pele is the verb form of the noun pele. So, so we see that as a name two other times. In Judges, we see a man by the name of Manoah. You'll find out he's Samson's father. And the angel of the Lord, Jesus, shows up, talks to Manoah's wife, tells her you're gonna become pregnant, you're gonna have a son. She's barren. God loves to work with barrenness. He's really good where there's emptiness. He can fill. So he shows up and he tells her this. She runs to her husband and he goes, wow, well, if he comes back, tell me, I wanna talk to him. Next day, he comes back. She runs and gets Manoah. Manoah runs over to the man, the angel of the Lord, Yeshua, and says, so what's the deal here? And he says the same thing to Manoah that he said to Manoah's wife. And then Manoah says, what's your name so that when your words come to pass, we may honor or we may worship you? The angel of the Lord said to him, Judges 13, 18, why do you ask my name, seeing it is Pele, it is wonderful. The angel of the Lord's name is wonderful. Is Jesus ever called wonderful? Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And I wanna lay something to rest right here and now. Is it wonderful, counselor, or is it wonderful counselor? Well, that's very simple. Both are nouns. It's Jesus will be called wonderful. That's his name, Pele. And he is counselor. And he is then mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But he's both wonderful and counselor. The word wonderful, nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing is too wonderful for Jesus who himself bears the name Wonderful. Father, tonight we thank you that you are wonderful. We praise you that you are wonderful. We look at what your word tells us and, and the remarkable way that you give tokens, signs, symbols, as we've talked about, like circumcision, so intimate, so meaningful, baptism, so intimate, so meaningful. The Passover lamb, communion. Lord, we thank you that you have seen fit just to give us these tokens of remembrance. But Father, I pray that as we come to you in faith, that it will be faith, not form, that we keep our eyes on. That we will grow in our faith, not in our structure that we will grow in our trust, not in our religion. Like Abraham, we would grow strong in faith. Lord, may our lives be places that are hospitable to your presence. May we follow you and trust you and believe in you. And may our laughter never be incredulous. May it be a laughter of joy and faith 
and resolve as the children of God. Thank you, Father, for your sensitivity in coming to Abraham and writing the misdirection. Thank you, Lord, that you show us you come to Sarah so that she can know. It reminds me, Father, that here tonight, every man, every woman has access to God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us all. May we love you more, and may we love each other more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.